This is not the sound of a stream running through the mountains. It's water from a leaking pipe trickling down a stairway. That's not a frog splashing into a lake. It's a piece of sheetrock falling into a puddle on a kitchen floor. And that's not a hiker taking a deep breath of mountain air. It's a homeowner gasping at the sight of a $12,000 water damage repair bill. 40% of homeowners have experienced water damage. Protect your home with the Moen Smart Water Monitor and Shutoff. Moen. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Accenture is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Essentia Overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. This episode is brought to you by ZipRecruiter. When you want the best, you have to act fast, especially when hiring for your business. You want to find the most talented people before the competition scoops them up. And the best way to do that? ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter finds top talent fast. In fact, four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. And right now, you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash Spotify. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Hello, and welcome to the BBC Gardener's World magazine podcast, brought to you by the team here at the magazine. Join us as we chat all things gardening with the nation's favourite experts. We've never faced a time in living memory when our wildlife is so at risk. And if you're listening to this, you're probably aware. You're probably also thinking you'd like to do your bit to help wildlife, but are perhaps unsure how to start? You're not alone, but I hope that by the end of this podcast, you'll discover a few ideas to take away and try. Hello, and welcome to this episode about wildlife gardening. I'm Kate Bradbury, wildlife editor of Gardener's World magazine, and I'm talking today to Alan Titchmarsh, gardening legend and organic grower for over 40 years, who spent much of lockdown getting to know better the wildlife in his own garden. We caught up late last year when I started by asking him what he'd learned about that wildlife from his forced downtime at home and how it encouraged it. I think when you're in your garden all day, every day, it suddenly becomes more intense. You're aware of every little development. You know, you'll go in your garden and then you'll go away for a day working or a couple of days and then you'll come back and you won't have seen that and something's opened and you think, oh, hello. But when you're in it all day, every day, you see this amazing progression, which is like a Mexican wave going through your garden. And to be able to watch it as we did from March right the way through to July and August, it was, I mean, thank goodness it happened at that time of year rather than in November. Yes, it was pretty lovely spring, wasn't it, to be locked down. 
It was. And I think, you know, I've always been connected with my garden. It's what I do. It's what I've always done. But it reinforced that and sort of bolted me to it. And I I felt reassured that, yes, this is the place to be. Um, So I wanted to ask you about your meadow, Alan, because obviously I I have been very privileged to to have visited you, which must be about 10 years ago now. The um, privilege was mine because oh, you came and you were able to identify bumblebees. I was, you know, it was lovely. So impressed. Was, oh, <laughs> thank you. Thank you for inviting me. Um, but I, I seem to remember it was it was it was only the meadow's second year. And um I've sort of always carried this thing that you said with me, um, which was because I've got a meadow in my garden now. I've I've just got a, a 40-foot garden, um, but most of it's sort of the lawn area is is, is meadow. And, and what you said was um, in the first year you had all oxeye daisies and the second year it's completely different. And you said you just never know with meadows. They're just different every year. And I've just had my second year of the meadow and it's completely different to the first year. Um, and that's something that, that's always stayed with me. And, and I wonder if, if you could just talk about the, the joy that, that your meadow brings and, and, and what the benefits are really to you of, of having the meadow. It's the part of the garden that I I visit the most, which is, in a way, it's quite surprised me because I'm a gardener and gardeners by their very nature interfere. Yes. You know, we, we create, we make things, we do artificial um, layers on top of a natural landscape. The wildflower meadow, since it was sown, has been allowed to get on, apart from my mown rides, which mm-hmm. I choose where they are, in its own way. Um, and it's become... A magnet for me, really, because we literally, we've cut it this week. It's mm. just been cut. And people say, oh, they're, they're just such hard work, meadows, aren't they? <laughs> that's it. Three days of work for two acres, you know. And we've cut it. Take it off. That's the important thing. Get yeah. the hay off, clear it, and the rides then still moan. Um, but I watch it. And this spring, particularly, has been here every day, watch and watch and watch right from the beginning of the year. And those first... As you say, about 10 years now, but now in March, the odd cowslip, Mm. end of March, beginning of April, yellow as almost as if it's a field of oilseed rape, except it's a softer yellow. Absolute sheets of cowslips everywhere. They start to fade. Then the oxide daisies come up and the vetches. Mm. And they're followed by greater and lesser knapweed, a bit of purple, blue scabious. The scabious this year, the field scabious, it's like looking at the sky on the ground. Mm. Wonderful. And all, of course, crawling with insects. This garden's totally organic and I've been organic for about 40 years. So we don't use any sprays at all. Mm. So anything that, and we're surrounded by farmland, which is not organic. So <laughs> hopefully they find us this little oasis in the middle. Uh, and after them, then comes marjoram. And then it ends up in July and August being purple. It's almost mm. like a heather moor. It's oh. so purple. And then it all starts to go brown. And then we cut it down. Then the rains have come and it's all greening over again. And, and it's this wonderful cycle. But as you say, it changes in terms of its makeup every year. And last year, the first bee orchid appeared. And I thought, oh, my goodness. And this year we've had some purple spotted. So you just keep thinking, please keep coming back. I I want, you know, orchids are the kind of ultimate seal of approval. You've worked long and hard for 10 years. (laughs) I will now give you an orchid. And for the home gardener sort of listening in, um, what would you recommend? Um, Would you recommend a a wildflower meadow for a smaller garden? And and how, how would you recommend they manage it? 
I would recommend it if you're prepared to cope with it in all its phases. Mm. Uh, it's rather like naturalising daffodil bulbs in your lawn yes. and then getting a bit impatient when it comes to the beginning of June and you've had to leave it long because <laughs> you've got to let the leaves photosynthesise before you chop them off. Um, so, uh, in fact, uh, somebody said to me, a friend said to me yesterday, I'm going to plant some daffs in that grass over there. So I said, do it round the edge because yeah. I knew this chap was quite neat, you know. So I said, do it round the edge because you've got to leave. If you do it in the middle, you'll be able to cross because <laughs> you, you won't be able to cross them. Unless you're not bothered about having flowers in year two, you know. So um, it, if you want to do it, um, and I always think it, it looks so much better if you have a mode strip around it, because yes. then it looks intentional rather than just neglected. Yes. So if if and, and within th- that little moan strip or whatever you can let it do what it wants or you can uh, mow a ride through it mm. you know two or three pathways through it and then it shows the intent um, which to our naturally tidy minds and most of us although we may think we're a bit slobby most of us have a degree of tidiness in us certainly when it comes to gardening and I try and get people out of it in the garden <laughs> it is not a sock drawer no. to be tidied you know it's a garden <laughs> anyway so yes if you can marshal it in that way in the garden um, so that it doesn't irritate you when it gets to the end of August, beginning of September, when you can cut it down. And then if you want, you can mow it right the way until February. I don't. I give mine one cut. The important thing is to take off what you've cut. Yes. If you leave it lying in clods, it just kills out what's underneath, as you know. So, yeah. Well, because yeah. I, I mean, I cut mine um, about two weeks ago and it's it's grown back and it's all got really sort of stubbly and, and you know, tufty. And I was just thinking, I'm just going to give that another nice mow so it looks really nice and neat. And then, of course, the house sparrows have just been all over it. And I just can't bear to. So yeah, it's just gonna stay it's just gonna stay softy. So that's the well, joy that's of them, it, isn't it? it? It is, but it's also being a gardener and it's learning to restrain that. I mm. mean, I uh, gardening is there is a degree of not so much tidying, I would like to call it orderliness. You know, yes. you are you are a ringmaster with a chair and a whip <laughs> cracking it over these lions of the garden. So you are controlling it, but you've got to know when to let it do its thing. And sometimes you can be too, you know, I've, I pick up sticks in woodland mm. and then I throw them down again. Say, Alan, it's not a garden, <laughs> it's a wood. Throw it down. There's more wildlife in rotting timber than anything else, you know. Just mm. So it's balance, really. Yeah. But if you can have your garden and it's not all looking as though it's just been forgotten about. You, you can do that wildflower. And it's so rewarding. Mm. Uh, the mistake a lot of people make is they think, oh, I'll turn my lawn into a wildflower meadow. I'll go out and I'll scatter a load of seed over the grass yeah. and it will come up next year and it'll be a meadow. Well, it won't, because no. as you know, yes. the grass is too strong. It will kill out all those seeds. Use plug plants if you want. But to be honest, the best way is to clear it of any vegetation. I don't think it's necessary, and it certainly hasn't been the case with my wildflower, to take off all the topsoil. They say, scrape off the topsoil. What? I mean, that's nature's gift. The other thing is, if you've got two acres, when am I going to put two acres worth of topsoil, you know, but sell it? So I didn't do anything. I had fallow ground, and I sow directly on the fallow ground. Sow a seed mixture which suits your area. We're on Mm. chalk downland here. I sowed something called the cricklade mixture from Emmersgate, which is for chalk downland. Mm. Get a seed mixture which suits your part of the country, and there are firms who will tell you what will suit you. And always grow from seed. I would always do that. Rather, plug plants can be very expensive yeah. and it's a very slow start. Mm. And of course, the grass is still there. Whereas if you sow a seed mixture, which has got something like yellow rattle in it, mm. which is a semi-parasite, it sucks some of the... the um, 
energy of the grass out so the grass isn't quite so um, vigorous and competing then you end up with a sward which is predominantly wildflowers and we can all have a wildflower meadow like yours well, on a small scale. Uh, I know. I always feel guilty when I talk about it because, I mean, gardening is my life, my job, my passion, my, my, my not my everything. I do have a family. Um, <laughs> but uh, yes, I've got a large garden, but it, this is my workshop. It's my career. It's my life. You know, mm. it's not just, I'm lucky in that yeah. it is, uh, which is why it's bigger. But I'm always aware of the people who've got a small patch. And, you know, to be whenever I'm, you know, when I'm working on Love Your Garden and making tiny gardens, there are basic rules. Are the same if there are rules, guidelines, let's yeah. call them rather than rules. So it doesn't matter how big your garden is, you can grow anything in it. Um, if you want an oak tree, probably better as a bonsai in a pot. <laughs> um, and, and that sort of leads me on to um to my next question, really, about, about your ornamental borders, um, which are obviously sort of a world away almost from from your from your wildflower meadow. And do you notice a difference in the wildlife that visits? your ornamental borders versus the, the wildlife that visits, visits the meadow? It is different. Um, there are different kinds of beetles in the meadow, you know, the soldier beetles and things like that, mm. which seem to come more in the meadow. But as an organic gardener, and I, I, this gardener, we've been here for 18 years. This has always been, since I've been here, it's always been organic. I've been an organic gardener for 40 years now. Mm. So I don't use chemicals at all, either chemical fertilisers or sprays. I just don't. And when you're going into a garden, a new garden, you do need to be patient. I mean, it's not going to be organic overnight. Everything's yeah. not going to suddenly come back. But you need to be patient. And when you are patient, you will find a natural balance is struck. You tend not to get epidemics of any yeah. one thing. Yes. And if you encourage birds in, you know, the blue tits will help eat the lady birds as will wasps as will um ladybirds you know all these things uh, eat green fly um so you you need to encourage nature and to let it know that it has more of a hand than it used to have perhaps when somebody else owned it and they they sprayed every mm. i mean my line about slug pellets is if they were any good you'd only have to use them once wouldn't you um, <laughs> <laughs> and Quite. you know we know that they can harm thrushes and hedgehogs and so and mm. pets yeah. Uh, so I just try, it seems to me to be a laudable aim to try and do it harnessing nature rather than fighting it the whole time. So, yes, it's different. But I grow a lot of uh, single flowers. Yes, there are some double flowers in my garden. There's a load of dahlias out at the moment, mm. which aren't much used to insects other than slugs. Mm. Not an insect, I know. Um, um, <laughs> but, you know, the, the, the Michaelmas daisies are out at the moment and they're, they're you know, full of bees and stuff yeah. like that. So, um there's, it's a different set of wildlife, but it's equally important to me that there is wildlife. And the butterflies in the garden, I've never seen so many orange tips as this year. It's yes, I know I read in your article. That's, that's, yeah, it was lovely. I was, I was quite jealous. Um, I Sorry. Think, <laughs> right. I think, um, I, I think the, 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 the benefit of ornamental borders as, as well is that they can extend the season. You know, you've just cut your wildflower meadow and, and um, you know, they, they're kind of a bit brown at this time of year anyway. And, of course, in the ornamental borders, you know, this, there'll be things flowering until sort of November. And, you know, wildlife isn't necessarily discriminating. You know, the, the bee doesn't come along and say, oh, I'm terribly sorry, that comes from uh, <laughs> Southeast Asia. No, I don't take Southeast Asia pollen. If it's got pollen on it, it's yeah. useful to a bee. Uh, and I think, you know, research has been done to show that gardens, which are by their very nature filled with aliens, you know, mm. there are very few plants growing in our gardens as opposed to our wildflower meadows that are natives. And wildlife, you do learn that if you give it half a chance, it's incredibly adaptable. <laughs> 
They will find a way of surviving. It always amuses me, and I say to people, you know, if you left motorways intact, you left a stretch of motorway and you didn't do anything with it, in 15 years' time you wouldn't be able to see it because it would have been taken over by little plants, trees, shrubs that have Mm. put their roots in that have broken up the concrete and the paving and the tarmac and it would be a forest. And No, it wouldn't. You watch, (laughs) you know. You know what the weeds are like on your drive, you know. Imagine what it's going to happen in 15 years on the motorway. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I really want to ask you about your rill. Um, Obviously, you know, you you did that lovely lovely film for um, GardenersWorld.com last year, I think it was, where where you gave this lovely tour of your garden. You introduced us all to this this new rill. How does that sit in your garden? How how does it make you feel? And and does wildlife use it or do they tend to stick to the more formal pond and the wildlife pond? Well, this massive great wildlife pond, which I'm looking out on now, which has got moorhens on it. We've had about three broods of moorhens this year in this mm. little tiny um, house that we've got on there and water lily pads and irises. Right? So that's the big wildlife pond. It's full of roach, which I did not introduce. Yeah. And it's a bit irritating in that, of course, they're going to eat all the eggs of dragonflies and damselflies that come. But they must have come on, on the feet of a duck or a fly <laughs> or something. There's hundreds of roach in there. It does mean the heron comes and fishes and no. very occasionally a kingfisher. So... Wow. You've got to let nature, you, know, you can't choose the wildlife that you no. want, it chooses you. Uh, the rill, on the other hand, which is a very formal, stone-flanked, narrow stream with three ponds in it, mm. um, it supports no wildlife internally, but birds come and drink from it, mainly the moorhens who should be staying out here oh. on the wildlife pond, and wood pigeons. Oh, that's uh, and of course. Well, it is, except I have to scrub the stone almost daily <laughs> to take off it what they leave behind. Right. So there you are. You can't choose your wildlife. It no. chooses you. <laughs> but the sound is lovely. I always yes. like that. This, the, the, the three, I say, there are about ten little mini waterfalls coming all the way down because it's a gentle slope. Uh, and there's a, a, a square pond at the top, uh, um, a square one at the bottom and a round one in the middle. So it's three little ponds. And each one has a short sort of four-inch high bubbly fountain coming up in it mm. and it's the sound of the water mm. with the rill which is so nice and when it gets to midday on midsummer's day it was in the middle of june the sun shines right up it at 12 noon oh, and each beautiful. waterfall which is about three or four inches high is silver Mm. And I love that little moment. You wait, it's not quite there. It's not quite there. there it is. It's gone. Oh. It's almost like a sundial. Yes. And so so the real in a way is for me and the wildlife can share it. You know, they've got a pond of their own. Yes. <laughs> Do you have any specific do's or don'ts that you could share with with the listeners on how to become a better wildlife gardener or or, or just simply provide for wildlife? I think the important thing is not to be too controlling. Be Mm. aware of what you're planting and what you're growing and remember that single flowers, which have nectaries and pollen, are the important things, particularly for nectar and pollen-gathering insects, bees, butterflies. Uh, Large double flowers, I'm not saying don't have any doubles, they're for your pleasure, but make sure there are plenty of single flowers. Make sure that there's a variety in your garden of different things. And if you can have some British natives, you know, it's astonishing what, will doesn't always happen what will lay their eggs on a patch of nettles you know butterflies you know small tortoiseshells peacock red admiral painted ladies are all on nettle Mm -hmm. Uh, but they need nettles need to be on a sunny spot they won't always come Uh, ragwort which is a you know 
a, a real pest of, of horses and stock, but it's the cinnabar moth that lays its eggs yes. on that. And if you do without that, you do a huge number of species that. use ragwort. It's amazing. Yeah. So be aware of that and take pleasure in enjoying the uglies of the garden, the mm. insects. They're, apart from bees and butterflies and waving your arms around to swat a wasp, <laughs> we, we tend not to think of them because they're, they're not particularly pretty, but they're vital. They, they are the things in our garden, the insects, on which everything else depends. And mm. without them, the whole thing collapses and falls to dust. Yeah. So I like to know that they're out there and I like to see them even if I don't know what they are. Mm. And that's one thing that one ought to make a, uh, an effort to, is to <laughs> learn what... We talk about LBJs in the bird world, little yes. brown jobs. Yes. They're not all sparrows. There are warblers <laughs> and things like that, uh, and finches. And I think one we, we really ought to make, all make a bit more of an effort with an insect book. And what is that funny little beetle? Is yes. it anything particular? Well, of course it is, you know. Yes. So I think to keep... Beatrix Potter, who wrote, you know, The Tale of Peter Rabbit and Joanna Poddleduck and those books, said mm. uh, she was a Lakeland sheep farmer in, in, in later life and bred Herdwick sheep up in Cumbria. And she said it's important to keep the child in you alive. Mm. And I think it's... I've had no difficulty in doing that. <laughs> and, uh, and as a result Same. of which, it's given me inordinate pleasure. And I think there's no finer feeling than getting well not getting to the end of your life but but feeling that during your life you've improved your bit of earth not just for you but for everything else that comes to it and I look out here now and think there was just rough weedy ground there yes mm. you could argue they're not weeds are growing where plants growing out of place they're wildflowers but it didn't support much yeah it was rough grass and stone and rocks and things and I cleared it made a wildlife pond so do wildflower and I see what comes there now and I think it's okay I've I've, um, I've earned my keep uh, yeah. uh, here I've earned my place on earth by making that better for all these things and it's a wonderfully fulfilling feeling mm. to do that it, as you say now when it's just been cut it's not the prettiest thing but it's only days before it starts greening up yeah. again and then people forget in gardening and in wildlife gardening particularly about the postponement of gratification and the anticipation of things to come mm. and particularly with wildflowers that meadow has been cut it has reached its terminus thank you good night grand finale snore yeah. it, will sleep, <laughs> it will sleep for a bit now yes. but then the turn of the year it'll start coming up. And funnily enough, little seedlings are coming up in it already. Mm. It's just been cut, but those little bare patches where the seeds, because I always wait before I cut yeah. until the seeds have fallen. And that's yeah. vital, as you know, brown and they've all fallen off. And then it's only days before the seedlings start mm. to come. I think we're off again. It yeah. started. Mine's just started reflowering. I've got a couple of little bits of flowering in mine as well. Really? Um, you little... see, you're the expert. You well... could <laughs> Hardly. It um, knows. It knows its case. It's got to do it. Um, and and that sort of brings me nicely, really, into you know, because you, you you know you talk about your pond and your wildflower meadow. Um, and you you've been playing with your your grandchildren as well, haven't you, on the pond and sort of instilling the love of nature with them. I mean, how important is it to you that that you pass on this love of wildlife to your grandchildren? And it's your children, vital. It's vital, and the important thing is that you don't force them into it. Um, my children 
grew up, as, as all children did, I didn't force Latin names on them. I encouraged them to enjoy being out there and to have fun out there. That's what's key. And if you do that, they'll think of it as the place they like being. And the whole forest school idea now where children get out of the classroom, that's a brilliant idea. Um, I started, Alison and I started a charity called Auntie Washes Gardens for Schools 20 years ago to make funds available to primary schools to build gardens and nature areas. It grew so big, I had to sort of hand it over to the RHS and it became part of their campaign for school gardening. So that's now an accepted way forward, which is great to get them interested out there. But also now to let them have fun, to let them make mud pies and stuff like that. And my uh, elder grandson was eight. We went, I bought him a butterfly net a couple of years ago and we went out this summer. Um, just catch he doesn't want to do anything with them he just wants to catch the butterflies and know what they are and we found a clouded yellow which made our day (gasps) wow Um, and I said to him at the end of the day I said how did that rate out of 10 then and he said 3 million and I thought that's it give them fun they love making lists they love sort of totting things up and I've seen this and I've seen that and if you give them a good time out there it's a seed well sown it'll go away in teenage years they won't be interested but it's and you can't fight that it's like trying to get teenagers and 20-somethings to watch um, live television on BBC One or ITV and they're not there. <laughs> so don't waste your time. They'll come back. Make sure it's instilled when they're young. Not dinned in, but just that their eyes are opened. They have a good time out there. Mm. Uh, and, and that way they'll come to love nature, as, as hopefully my children yes. and grandchildren do. And what a treat as well to, for, you know, to be eight years old and to be learning the names and how to identify certain certain butterflies. I mean, and that's 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 a, that's an extraordinary thing to pass on. It seems to me, on the whole, better than Pokemon cards. <laughs> Though I suspect Pokemon cards are now very last year. <laughs> Uh, and of course, these don't go out of fashion. God no. willing, if they look after the wildlife, it'll keep coming back year on year. Yes, Alan, do you do you worry about the future? Do do you do you see your career and and the work you do in your garden as, as as something? You know, obviously you've done you've done great things to inspire the nation to do more gardening. I mean, do you ever sort of worry about you know whether your grandson will be able to see the butterflies in the future? I mean, do you think wildlife gardening's a, a big factor in in helping to sort of stem declines, as it were? I've done my best to explain to people, to show people the delight and the pleasure that it gives me as a person and the importance that wildlife and plants in particular have for the future of the planet. I worry sometimes that it's all about shouting and being angry Mm. and not about doing. And I think the most important thing, because the environment, the landscape seems so big that an individual can feel powerless to do anything about it. Mm. The individual needs to do that little bit outside their own back door and all those little bits will join together and make a real practical difference and I just hope that the people who march and raise awareness very important also do their bit because if people feel powerless they turn their backs on something if they feel they can make a difference and that's where we need to move now is to showing people how they can make a difference and encouraging them to do it not only for their own pleasure but also for the future of the planet by interesting children in wildlife and wildlife gardening that is exactly what we do. Thanks for listening to the BBC Gardener's World magazine podcast. And for more gardening tips and inspiration, why not try our new magazine subscription offer for podcast listeners at buysubscriptions.com forward slash GWpod. You'll also find our special offer in the podcast pages on gardenersworld.com. 
where we also share more about today's themes. So if you've enjoyed this episode, please tell others about it and rate us in your podcast provider app. And we'll see you next time 